narrator. Here. I said that brilliant spiel about the band and you too much. You did. And now you're going to do it again. I'm going to do it again. <laughs> and I want you to say it exactly how you said it the first time. <laughs> Let's see what else I have to say. Go on. All right. Go for it. Okay. Going in three, two, one. All right. Let's go. Let's go. Oh, no. do you want to? I'll let you. I'll let you. I'm excited. I'm going to feel relaxed and I'm ready. You party! I'm so sorry. You don't need to do that. You don't need to apologize. It's a fucked up female habit. You don't need to be sorry for anything ever. Can you guess what every woman's worst nightmare is? I don't have rage issues! I have nothing to prove to you. When I'm good, I'm very good. But when I'm bad, I'm better. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello and welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where we are definitely 100% with it all the time. (laughs) And we remember to record our episodes. And we remember to hit record. (laughs) Okay. I'm Karen Peterson, joined by Lauren Humphreys Brooks. Hello. Who always remembers to hit the record button. I always remember to hit. It's true. I do. (laughs) I'm just, I'm not going to point out that the, that, okay. Anyways. (laughs) moving on all oh, right that didn't happen we just had a really wonderful rehearsal and we wish you all could have heard how great it was but you're gonna hear this episode instead <laughs> oh goodness um yeah so how are you Lauren? <laughs> i'm i'm doing good but i think we should get straight to the conversation that we're gonna have today because i i am excited i am so excited that i just did an entire really wonderful speech that did not get recorded and i want to do it again (laughs) for anybody who's listening going what the hell are you guys talking about so we started our episode and we did it and we spent like 10 minutes talking about stuff and introing what we're talking about today and lauren just talked really brilliantly about two films that we're going to be discussing and uh then she said wait we're not recording this episode. And that was completely my fault because it's my, my responsibility today. And uh, that's where we're at. So um, we're going to try to recreate what she just said. Um, she is pretty brilliant. So I'm sure she can do it again. Uh, but that is what happened. And I apologize to all of you. Not that it matters. I could have just avoided that and pretended none of it ever happened. You'd never know. But that's but it's, role, so. But it's funny. It, it is, is funny. Because <laughs> this is not the first time that's happened oh goodness all right so um this week we were both really excited for this episode um this is one specific topic that i've wanted to do for a long time uh this weekend for anybody who's not aware um it's alfred hitchcock's birthday and we both really just adore alfred hitchcock although i will concede that lauren is a slightly bigger fan than i am um because you've First of all, you've seen more of his movies. And second of all, you are literally writing a book about him. So Try, I'm trying to. Not. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not writing a book about Alfred Hitchcock. So I think that means you win in terms of being a bigger fan. So um, but uh, just before we launch into what we're really talking about today, I would really love to hear your favorite random fact about Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> uh, so so at the Yes, my I think my favorite effect is the is the fact that he supposedly accor- according to Hitchcock and you always have to take what he says with a grain of salt. Um but especially when it comes to like personal things or, or he was a big practical joker. Um but 
my, one of my favorite things is that he's he was supposedly really frightened of eggs like chicken <laughs> chicken eggs and just did not like them was disgusted by them really there was just something about them that he really just like i don't recall that he ever actually explained why um except that you know he may have <laughs> i think i think at some point he said like that he had been frightened by an egg as a child <laughs> uh which i again it's like what does that mean exactly i mean um but i i just like that that uh that that you know the guy who's like who's known for frightening all of us right in the horror master himself yeah playing on our some deep psychological fears just like yeah eggs kind of freak me out like i (laughs) i enjoy that that's pretty great i love it thank you uh, so what we're doing today in honor of Hitchcock's birthday is the last couple of years we've done episodes that were centered on some of our favorite Hitchcock films. It was early Hitchcock. It was, you know, some of his more notable or more not notable, but more um, famous movies and things. What we want to talk about this time is um, Hitchcock remakes that actually work and why they work and what what makes them work um, in not in the let's do a shot for shot remake of a Hitchcock film for no reason whatsoever. But, uh, but films that actually take what Hitchcock did and um, use them to make something that's different, but, Mm. uh, but can be really fun. So that's what we're talking about today. And the first film we want to talk about is actually um, the first, the first thing I say, whenever anybody complains, you can't remake Hitchcock. I say, this is an example because Hitchcock remade Hitchcock. So, you know, <laughs> if he can do it, uh-huh. other people can too. It, it can be done. It's allowed. Uh, so the first film we want to talk about is the 1956 film, The Man Who Knew Too Much, which is a remake of the 1934 film, The Man Who Knew Too Much, which starred Peter Lorre. Uh, the 1956 film starred James Stewart and Doris Day. As a couple who is vacationing, they end up kind of in the middle of a an international plot. Their son gets kidnapped because of some information that is told to Jimmy Stewart. And he is basically told like, hey, uh, keep that to yourself or, or your son's going to get it. And so um, they're trying to get him back and they chaos ensues and lots of lots of things happen and um anyway so lauren to start us off why don't you talk a little bit about how the remake and the original kind of work together and and how they compare to each other well i i think you know i go back and forth on this actually and um and in in this most recent rewatch of of the the remake I, I actually liked it more it's not one of my favorite Hitchcock films um not even in terms of like his his later works and this this is 1956 so this is getting into some of his later his later stuff um this kind of at the end of a certain period of his his big Hollywood career uh but Hitchcock himself like said essentially said that he felt the 1934 film, which was made in kind of the middle point of his his British period, his early British period, so before he goes to Hollywood, um, and is definitely not as accomplished a film as I think something like The Lady Vanishes or The 39 Steps is. But he basically said that he felt the 34 film was the work of a talented amateur and that the 1956 film was the work of a, of a professional. And, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those, if you watch any, I mean, I'm, I'm saying this right from the first 
Hitchcock silent film that we have, which I think is the the Pleasure Garden, is the the first existing one that we have. Um, all the way through, you it's kind of like okay, so that's the work of an amateur. <laughs> what what does that say? Like I you mentioned um, earlier, what does that say about about other people? About yeah, other what did you think of other directors? <laughs> <laughs> and and you could definitely see the the seams a little bit more and you can see him playing with different things throughout his early career but he's pretty much a consummate professional as far as i'm concerned right from the beginning hitchcock was very uh self-critical he he taught he and he even talked about that he talked about basically having the film made in his head before he ever started filming and of course it never came out exactly the way that it wanted that he wanted it to because it never does right that's just a fact um but so the the original film i think is it's a it is a much smaller film the the remake allows for a lot more kind of scope um you know there's the, the albert hall sequence which is is fantastic i'm sure we'll talk about it in a minute um but just everything like exotic locales big cast um big star a lot of star power um and and the original film is much smaller. It it does. I mean, it takes it moves across from they go from like Switzerland to um, to London, right? So you do get, but you get a very different view, I think, of of the world. It's a lot quirkier. There's a lot like weirder things that happen. There's there's a scene in a church, but the scene is actually like this this sun worshiping cult uh, that oh, is man. like. There's there's an entire scene in a dentist's office, which is replaced in in the remake by the scene in the taxidermists. Um, but I I think that there's more humor ultimately in in uh, in the original film, and particularly I I would say that Peter Laurie as the villain in the original 1934, and and this is this is a guy who at this point Peter Laurie could not speak English. He learned his uh, his lines phonetically um which is spectacular if you watch the film because you cannot tell that that the yeah you cannot tell that this is a guy who does not speak english um so he was literally learning english as he was acting in this film um and and he but he's great he's weird he's peter laurie right but he's just this is a particularly weird role and he's so wonderfully fascinating to watch and for a filmmaker who really is known for creating fantastic villains. Um, it's sad to me that he that Hitchcock wasn't able to get someone for the um, for the 1956 film of the same kind of level. And and I don't think that it's it's not a knock on any of the actors or anything like that. It's just that there's not there's not that really strong central villain um, that you enjoy watching and that you also you know enjoy hating. Uh, and Laurie really, really does that. So I think that there are flaws in both films. I don't think either one of them are his best work, um, but which is not to say that they're bad films. But mm-hmm. um, uh, I still, I, I still prefer the 1934 film to to the remake. Yeah, I think just on the subject of the villain, I do think that the um, the remake villain, like he, he, he comes across more cartoonish in in a lot of ways mm-hmm. um and and silly and in a movie where i mean you've got jimmy stewart and and doris day who i think both do a really good job for their i think they're perfect for their roles yeah um i think they both do a great job but 
when you have the two of them, you need someone a little bit more. Um, I don't know. Like it, it I, I feel like it would have worked better if they had someone a little bit more menacing, like honestly menacing and not a little, not silly. And he's not intended to be silly. He's intended to be menacing, but he just doesn't come across that way. Yeah. There, there isn't that, there isn't that undercurrent. I mean, the, Part of it is that, you know, the, the kid might be killed, right? That's that's the worry throughout the entire film. Right. Um, and I, I never, I honestly, throughout that, throughout the film, I never felt like the kid is in danger because the yeah. villains just aren't that villainous. Right. Right. And so, whereas 100%, and when you watch Peter Lorre in the 34 film, he is 100% ready to murder anyone. <laughs> Like, just like you look at him wrong, he's going to kill you. And he's he is perfectly happy to do that. And I don't think that that exists in in the 56 film. So the challenge is then like, you know, are they going to be able to save their son and also stop the killing of the of whoever this person is? Right. So that's where the tension really lies. But I I never felt like the kid was really, really in danger. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, let's talk about the Royal Albert Hall scene from the 1956 film. Um, first of all, I think before we get to that, though, let's talk a little bit about James Stewart and Doris Day, who play this very, very quintessentially American couple. He's a doctor. She's a performer. So she knows a lot of people uh, in in um in Europe because she's performed there and um but anyway so they they end up um I'm not even sure if that's where we should start. I'm sorry. <laughs> um well well why don't we talk about the fact that James Stewart and Doris Day are the most American couple to ever America. Let's talk about that, yes. <laughs> I mean they because they are because they're I and I, I do think that I find it funny that Doris Day is in a Hitchcock film. Um at the same time, I, I actually like the watching this film this time around. I was like, actually, I I kind of like Doris Day in this, and one of the reasons for that is uh, I said this to you on Slack. She's right. Mm-hmm. She's right pretty much from the beginning. Like as yeah. soon as they meet Louis Bernard, who's the the guy who turns out to be a spy, right? Who who tells them that this man that someone is going to be murdered, mm-hmm. um, and that they have to get this information to London. She's like, the second that they meet him, she's immediately suspicious of him. She's like, who is this guy? He just like randomly makes contact with us on a bus. He asks us all of these questions. You know, her husband is just answering all of the questions, but he he's not answering anything about himself. Like there's something off about this dude. There's something like that. And I, I think there's even one point in which Jimmy Stewart is just like, oh yeah, I'm sure he's like a murderer or a spy or something. <laughs> and she's like, well, he could be. Right. And- and yeah, so she's just automatically suspicious. And and the fact is throughout the entire film, at every point, she's like, something isn't right. <laughs> yeah, uh, we need to do something. And her husband's like, no, you're being extreme. No, you're being hysterical. And she's right. She's consistently right throughout the film. <laughs> All of this would have been avoided if he would have just listened to his wife in the first place and uh instead of just like oh whatever honey you know yeah and um and that is one thing that i love i do think that the casting of doris day is part of like between her and um um 
I just blanked on all the movies and all the actresses. But I think this is one of those uh, reasons why people always want to look to the Hitchcock blonde as like his trope. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, which we have debunked in previous episodes. Um, but even in terms of the Hitchcock blonde, right? Mm-hmm. North State does not really fit the description. Right. Um, because she's she's not cold. Mm-hmm. She's not, you know, she's very, her reactions are very natural. Like when she finds out that her son has been kidnapped, when um, she's trying to figure out what to do, right? What is, what is the best thing to do? And it's that tension between we should go to the police, but also if we go to the police, it might put a, our son in danger, but maybe it would be better if we just get the, you know, that kind of back and forth that, that they go through of like, what is the best solution here right. that is going to, is going to accomplish the thing that we want, which is to get our son back. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all of her reactions are very, very natural, I think. Yeah. And yeah. And I feel like his reactions are very natural to yeah. a stereotypical 1950s doctor husband <laughs> where it's yeah. like, my wife is hysterical. My wife doesn't know what she's talking about. Very dismissive of her, like loves her, loves his son, but, but dismissive of his wife's concerns. His response when the, when he finds, he's the one that finds out first that their son has been kidnapped and his, his way to deal with that is to drug her get her like <laughs> relaxed on some like viking like 1950s version of vicodin which is way better i'm sure uh or not vicodin xanax um and um and then break the news to her and like he just he he's constantly um underestimating how capable his wife is mm-hmm. uh, which i think tracks like that it, it fits the <laughs> it fits the, the character in the time frame like he just doesn't really understand how how smart and strong she is because he just won't freaking listen to her and it's very frustrating well and and i think i think that it's 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 very deliberate on the part of the film yes like and i i think that, the, that that's important to know you know hitchcock who's and you know we, we've talked about the issues of, of misogyny and sexism and stuff like that but actually a lot of hitchcock's females right the women who are in his films are very proactive Mm -hmm. and are are very often right and i think that the film shows that so much of what happens is a direct result of jimmy stewart not being honest and not listening to his wife Mm -hmm. and 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 when you actually think about it it kind of makes sense like he's he's very dismissive of her um, and of her, you know, I think at one point he even makes a crack about female intuition and all of this. And you're just like, well, no, it's not intuition. She's literally paying attention to what's happening around her. Right. Um, and and also the the fact the fact is that the film introduces this woman who has been responsible for her own career for a very long time until she got married and became a mother. Mm-hmm. Um, but is a world traveler, has been to Paris, has been to London, has been to all of these different places, is not, you know, particularly sheltered or anything like that. And he's actually much more sheltered than than she is. He's mm-hmm. a doctor in Indianapolis. Right. Right. Um, there, this isn't anything that, you know, he's very much like treated as, as kind of he's this provincial to a certain degree doctor um and she's like this world traveler and she's like no she actually might know more shit than you do (laughs) exactly um yeah so okay so all of the things that happen throughout the film lead to 
them getting this information that the prime minister is going to be assassinated at a performance at the Royal Albert Hall. And so they're trying to figure out how to stop this from happening. And this leads them there and uh, leads to a fascinating sequence that you talked a little bit about um, this week on social media. And we definitely talked a little bit about among ourselves too, but this fascinating sequence where there is no spoken, there's sound, there's no spoken dialogue, audible spoken dialogue for a very long stretch. And it's one of the, it's one of the most intense sequences of the film. So can you talk a little bit about that? I, it, I mean, it's a, it's a famous sequence. Um, mm-hmm. I, I didn't realize how long it went on for actually, because after I watched the the film again, I went back and I just, you know, looked at the times, the, the timestamps on the beginning of the sequence. So the moment that the moment that the dialogue ends, so it's when Dorstay enters the main auditorium of Albert Hall and the moment that like the shot is fired and the guy falls into the audience. And between those, those two points, it's a 10 minute sequence with no dialogue. Um, people talk, but you don't hear them. Mm-hmm. So there's like, so all of it is about image. It's about gesture. It's about the the intercutting of the different images. And it's about the music because we've been cued. The audience has been cued into the fact that at this one particular point, this guy is going to be assassinated, right? At this one moment in this, um, in this move, in this uh, symphony, mm-hmm. this man is going to be assassinated. And we know it and we can we can feel like the rhythm of the cuts change. It it increases in intensity. You get more shots of like you get shorter shots, uh, more shots of like Doris Day reacting, Jimmy Stewart showing up and trying to find the the place where the the assassin is, you know, all of this of trying to convince the police to help him, all of these different things that are happening. And the fact that it is this 10 minute sequence in the middle of a film made in 1955 um with absolutely no dialogue that is o- that the only sound is the sound that is coming from the stage and then you got this like break point of the scream um and and then everything kind of cuts loose at that point it is it's just a master class of suspense yeah uh the, the the whole thing is just so well done and it's so intense and you don't even notice that no one has said anything for 10 minutes mhm yeah. So there are a couple of things I wanted to to point out about this sequence. So first of all, I think the fact that there's no audible dialogue just really accentuates the scream when you hear Doris Day scream because she doesn't know what else to do to stop this. So it really just makes that that moment that much more intense. If we had heard Jimmy Stewart imploring, imploring the police to come or if we'd heard him out in the hall, like, you know, kind of trying to get attention and stuff. It would have taken away from that. So it's brilliant to to make that choice. I also just wanted to shout out um, the editor, because I think that a big mm-hmm. part of the reason this scene works so well is because of how well cut together it is. And the editor for this film was George Tomasini, who worked with Alfred Hitchcock uh, a lot. He They started working together on, um, I think it was To Catch a Thief. Yes. Um, to catch it oh no sorry rear window in 1954 and they collaborated on to catch a thief the man who knew too much vertigo north by northwest psycho 
and the birds and Marnie. So um, they worked together a lot, but he also edited the misfits, Cape fear, some other films as well. But um, anyway, I just wanted to give a shout out to him because I think that a big part of why a film, a sequence like this in a film, a, you know, big, um, big film like this works is, is because of the editing. So absolutely. Editors do not get enough credit. <laughs> no. I, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that, um, you know, Hitchcock recognized that too. Mm-hmm. The, 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 that entire sequence is very much the kind of, he, he used to tell a story about the bomb under the table, right. That the, that there's a different, and it was to illustrate the difference between suspense and surprise, right. So surprise is people are sitting at a table and the, and a bomb explodes. Mm-hmm. right that's surprising you don't expect it to happen suspense is you see the the bomber set the timer you know what time it is you you see the bomber put the the bomb under the table you see the people come in so the building of suspense is the audience's knowledge that something is going to happen right um and waiting for it to happen and so the the pleasure of it and in a in a cinematic sense is we know what's coming right and we also want to know like will they get out in time kind of thing mm-hmm. will they discover the bomb and it's it's very similar in what's happening in the the albert hall sequence where we know what's going to happen um but we're way and we know when it's going to happen too we have you've got the ticking clock element you know at what point in the in the concert this is going to happen and it's getting closer and closer and closer and it's like is anything going to happen that will change the explosion that will change the the murder Mm -hmm. um and and yeah and then you just get that wonderful break with the screen yeah and i also find it fascinating too that this is not the climax of the movie either because (laughs) they don't get their son back after this scene (laughs) it goes on on for another 15 minutes yeah it's like god damn it (laughs) but it goes to another sequence that is also you know also suspenseful not quite to this level but it goes into another scene where now we get a chance to hear doris day sing an original song um (laughs) and (laughs) as they get invited to the embassy where um the because they've saved the prime minister and he said yeah come see me and so they've they've figured out that that is where their son is at and um so they accept the invitation so that that gets them in the door so Mm -hmm. while she is entertaining the prime minister uh he is out um jimmy stewart is out trying to figure out where their son is and then it it just then it leads to a beautiful conclusion and they live happily ever after (laughs) but um but it's just fascinating to me that like we have this big huge suspenseful moment and that is not the climax of the movie (laughs) yeah exactly so exactly yeah. it's just like oh yeah the kid has to be rescued still that's the whole, <laughs> right so well that's the thing the whole point of the film for them and the what the film follows is not we've got to save the guy from being murdered mm-hmm. it's we've got to save our son exactly right? and so it's this weird in a lot of ways the albert hall sequence is like this sudden turn mm-hmm. where we're like oh yeah the guy's gonna be murdered <laughs> <laughs> i guess we can save the prime whatever <laughs> yeah um so any other thoughts about the man who knew too much I, the the one last thing that i want to say is i i do think one of the other places that the original kind of exceeds the the remake is the role of the mother in the ending um so you know doris day sings and and part of the way that that Stuart finds their son is that he be, he hears her and he and the son begins whistling the mm-hmm. song and kind of leads his father to to find him 
Um, in the in the original, the mother is a sharpshooter. <laughs> And uh, basically the father has like, you know, is trying to rescue their daughter. He's been kidnapped himself. He's trying to get their daughter out. And she winds up shooting the man who uh, is like holding their daughter prisoner. So it's a much more, it's this wonderful point where like everybody, like, and she's surrounded by cops and the cops are all like, we can't shoot because what if we hit the kid? And she's like, okay, let me do it. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a fantastic moment. And I, I, you know, I, on the one hand, the Doris Day character is a lot, is a lot more active um, in, in the man who knew too much in the remake, but she also kind of gets relegated at a certain point. And, and I do think that the ending in the original is, is stronger at that level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. So the next film we're going to talk about is from 1987, Throw Mama from the Train, directed by Danny DeVito, starring Danny DeVito and Billy Crystal and Anne Ramsey. And um, strange fact, also the cinematographer on that film was Barry Sonnenfeld, who would go on to direct (laughs) (laughs) lots of stuff, but... Um, I always forget he's a director or he was a cinematographer until I watch something and his name pops up in the credits. I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so um, Thoreau Mama from the Train is I wouldn't say it's a full remake. It's definitely because of the fact that it strongly references the movie that it's based on, which is Strangers mm-hmm. on a Train from 1951. And that film was based on a Patricia Highsmith novel and um the screenplay was written by Raymond Chandler, which is just one of those fun facts. Um, you sound like you're going to say something. No, I, I was I was going to say that the that Throw Mama from the Train is as different from Strangers on a Train as Strangers on a Train is different from the Highsmith novel. There we go. All right. A lot of ways. <laughs> Maybe not quite that that level, but like the film Strangers on a Train and the novel Strangers on a Train are two very different stories like mm-hmm. it's it's the same basic idea like two men meet on a train and they just de- and one of them is crazy and uh <laughs> they decide to swap murders mm-hmm. but one of them decides to swap murders the other one is just like what the fuck are you talking yeah. about <laughs> yeah only one of You're them crazy. decides they're gonna do this <laughs> um but but yeah it's it's interesting actually that trajectory of just like okay the novel no and the film no and then there's there's throw mama from the train which also no so <laughs> it's interesting that's funny i need to read the novel the strangers on a train is one of my favorite hitchcock films i really love it um and interestingly enough i'm pretty sure i saw throw mama from the train before i ever saw that one so i think i I think I may have too. I, yeah. I, because I, I remember very vividly that scene where Danny DeVito is in, um, is in the movie theater watching Strangers on a Train. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they have that whole the crisscross conversation. Yeah. So, um, let's talk a little bit about Throw Mama from the Train, which, like I mentioned, it came out in 1987, and um, in this film, so in the original film, it's two strangers meet on a train one wants to one wants his father murdered um the other just needs to be rid of his ex-wife he he's a tennis pro and the guy who wants to get rid of his father is like the one that comes up with this idea hey well we'll just commit each other's murders and then neither of us has a has a motive to commit the murder that we did so Mm -hmm. we won't we'll get away with it so in throw mama from the train um you have danny devito plays owen who um 
he he's he has he has some problems <laughs> and uh he he uh his mama is ann ramsey who i just i always loved ann ramsey um she was mama fratelli in the goonies she did a lot of other stuff but anyway um she is um she is an old woman who just has a lot of needs and she's also not very nice to her son <laughs> and um it's a very codependent and also abusive relationship but um he's very stunted and not able to just leave home so then you also have billy crystal who plays larry who is a writer and he's very bitter because his ex-wife uh, is very famous now for her debut novel, which he claims was really his story, and she stole it. So uh, you got these two guys with these um, uh, women that they really want out of their lives for different reasons, and um, and Danny DeVito as Owen, he's just like he sees strangers on a train because he's trying to write. He he knows he knows Larry because they're in a Larry's teaching his writing class and. Um, tells owen very directly go read some hitchcock go learn some hitchcock and uh then that will help you write suspense so owen decides to do that ends up going to see strangers on a train and says hey wait we can commit each other's murders for real like he <laughs> kind of forgets the part that he's supposed to be learning how to write a book <laughs> uh, what are your thoughts about throw mama from a train it's it's such a it's an odd film because it it, it goes back and forth between like this kind of extreme slapstick comedy right mm -hmm. and to like you know this these kind of grotesqueries like there's something a little bit there's something off about it <laughs> the, like the entire film the entire world that the film constructs right mm -hmm. um and it's i mean i i enjoyed re-watching it it there is definitely an undercurrent of misogyny i think running through it although mm -hmm. At the at the same time, there's also there's also this like part of it is about these men who are like so upset at being kind of controlled by women, right? At some level, but the fact is they're allowing themselves to be yes. controlled by women. They like the the Billy Crystal character who I think he's a great representation of a writer who can't write. Um, the <laughs> yeah. the entire thing the night was humid, the night was moist, the night was <laughs> hot and wet. Like, I was and, like, dude, you're just a terrible writer. <laughs> Well, and that's that's the thing. And then at the the kind of the climax of the film, Mama looks at him and goes, "The night was sultry," <laughs> and and he's just like, "I'm gonna kill her." Like he, and, but it's it's just just like she's right. <laughs> she's mm -hmm. she's one hundred percent right. Mm -hmm. Um, but so like the and and that kind of, that's kind of a feature throughout the film where it's these two guys who like can't get their lives moving in part because they're so obsessed with their you know relationships with these these women um that they're just like they have to like eliminate the women from their consciousness essentially right um i i do like the way that it upends some of the like some of the things that happens in strangers on a train like there there are definite corollaries back and forth between um throw mama from the train and strangers on a train there are whole like there are scenes where uh where owen is like waiting outside of larry's house um, that very much mirror the appearance of, of Bruno throughout Strangers on a Train, um, their conversations that they have. So I, I like the meta narrational elements to it. So you've got this film that's like a sat satirical remake of Strangers on a Train that also has the film Strangers on a Train in it. Mm -hmm. 
and is very directly saying like this is the film that's inspiring everything um i yeah it's it's a it's an odd film in a lot of ways but um it's it's very enjoyable and i think it's it's a good example of how you can remake a hitchcock film but also make it so different that it kind of goes off on its own yeah which is ultimately what i really wanted to talk about with uh, this idea of like how do you remake hitchcock in a way that works and i think that that this film and then the other one that we're going to talk about in a second i think these are two examples of how to do it right if you're if you're not mm-hmm. hitchcock remaking his own film uh what you need to do is is be inspired by hitchcock learn lessons of how he builds tension and how he tells a story, how he introduces his characters, but then let it be its own thing. You cannot like ultimately, no, you can't remake Hitchcock because it's going to always look like something that is a copy. It's never going to Mm -hmm. really thrive on its own. But when you take the inspiration and you understand what it was that made his films work, you can have, you can have movies that are, are really well done and in the case of throw mama from the train i think there are definitely some things about it that are like uh, <laughs> i don't know but it's also very funny and i would mm-hmm. say as far as the i definitely do see the undercurrent of misogyny but i also think that things like um larry's relationship with his ex-wife is really interesting because uh he spends the entire film complaining that she stole his novel but that's never backed up so i think that the yeah. i think that the um the i think what we're really seeing at least the way i can i draw my conclusion from it is that she didn't actually she was a really good writer and she was able to 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 go out and actually make a career out of something that was his dream that he hasn't been able to make it work yeah. and he's projecting and blaming her for his lack of success um but but yeah i think that this movie is often very funny i love that it actually has a climax that is on a train (laughs) 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 and and i like the 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 conclusion i like the way that ultimately i mean larry's gonna larry he's 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 just gonna kind of be this guy but ultimately by the end he finally has written a new novel that he is so proud of and then <laughs> owen comes and is so excited because he's written a book too and <laughs> he's basically they've written a book about the same thing but not really but larry <laughs> is so in his own like everyone's stealing from me i'm the victim that he originally he first thinks that owen is gonna steal his book <laughs> Well, and and I think that actually that kind of that ending of the two books that are about the same thing, right, Mm -hmm. is a very good sort of corollary to what is being done with with Throw Mama from the Train and to a certain extent, the other film that we're going to talk about. They're both parodies at some level. They're satires, but they're they're using concepts that Hitchcock kind of made iconic. And I, I wouldn't say Hitchcock was not the first one to come up with some of these things. Strangers on a Train is based on a novel to begin with. But this this whole idea of this very kind of simple these these concepts that then Hitchcock makes iconic, and then kind of turn into these these really interesting parodies and parodic elements and different ways of playing with them, and those are that is where Hitchcock remakes, as you say, are most successful, where they're in dialogue with the originals, but they are kind of taking those things and making them funnier or less funny or really trying to like see, look at them from a different perspective, I guess. Yeah. Um, and 
And that, and ultimately at the ending of Throw Mama from the Train, that's exactly what you've got, the same story, right? That two people looked at very differently Mm -hmm. and came out with two things that are very successful. Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah, any other thoughts about Throw Mama from the Train? It is on Max. It is, yeah. Uh, and and it's it's worth watching. It's it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, it's it's bizarre though. I I have to say I'd forgotten. I'd seen it like on Comedy Central when I was a kid or something like that, and so I did not remember much about it. Um, but I I was just like, this is just weird. In places, it's just very <laughs> weird. <laughs> it is. It's very weird. It's very quirky. But I just I, I just get such a kick out of it, and um. Yeah, it's it's definitely worth watching. It's not it's not like an amazing film. It's also not Danny DeVito's best film that he directed, but um but it's it's a lot of fun. So. Mm-hmm. But the one that I personally, I don't know how you feel, but I personally am most excited to talk about is The Burbs, which I don't know why I love this movie so much, but I do. <laughs> I was going to say, Karen, is it because you grew up in the suburbs? I mean, I grew up in the suburbs. My last name is Peterson. When my parents were married, my mom's name was Carol Peterson, Um, (laughs) which is just funny um, because that is Carrie Fisher's character's name in this movie, which uh, was directed by Joe Dante and the stars Tom Hanks, Bruce Dern, Carrie Fisher, Corey Feldman, Rick DeCommon, Wendy Shaw, Henry Gibson, um yeah it's it's um it's basically it's a remake uh adaptation of rear window from 1954 which again starred jimmy stewart and um and that one also starred grace kelly and thelma ritter and um but the burbs is 1989 and it's the same idea it's set in the suburbs uh instead of in what is it greenwich village and um and this is not only is it in the suburbs this is on a cul-de-sac which cul-de-sacs in the suburbs have their own very specific uh kind of flow and um these new neighbors have moved next door and all the the folks on the on the street become well the men on the street become very convinced that something really weird is going on next door and that these guys are are part of a cult and they're <laughs> determined to to prove it so um i'm curious what you think of the burps <laughs> i i've seen the burps a couple of times uh actually i completely forgotten that joe dante directed and i love joe dante so mm-hmm. that's always like you know that that raises it one of it's interesting in thinking about it as a as a hitchcock remake because it's you know it's a rear window takes place in greenwich village where everybody's kind of living on top of everybody else mm. and you can kind of be in your neighbor's business simply by looking out your window um and i like the fact that that kind of gets lifted and then dropped down into suburbia where you have a similar similar occurrence mm-hmm. right um where yeah everybody is kind of in each other's business and everybody knows everybody else you kind of know whose wives have gone away for the weekend um whose you know dog craps on whose whose person's lawn all of those things if an unfamiliar car turns on your street everybody talks about it you know yes yeah. 
And so it's interesting that, you know, you've got one film that is set in New York City, you've got a, another film that's set in like suburbia, and you've got the same kind of neighbor relationships in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. where everybody's kind of involved in each other's business, but also is sort of distanced from it. And so then you've got this thing that like, this blot, right? There's something is wrong with this house. Something is wrong with this apartment. The people who live there are not behaving normally, according to you and me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so in, in this case, you got Tom Hanks, who is his generation's Jimmy Stewart. Yes, he is. Uh, uh, very much, you know, kind of occupying that role of like increase, getting increasingly weird um, <laughs> and increasingly paranoid as he's watching what is going on across the street, right? This is then aided by two incredibly paranoid characters, um, including the, you know, I like that Bruce Dern is there. Bruce Dern was in Hitchcock's last film, actually. <laughs> Uh, and and is also here playing a Vietnam War vet. If, if you've seen any of Bruce Dern's films, you know why that's funny. <laughs> um, but but yeah, so so you've got the sort of everybody kind of getting into each other's business, and then the the question consistently being, has something actually happened? Is, are these people like murderers or cultists or whatever, um, or are we just like projecting all of this weirdness onto them because we're bored? Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to like make up this shit about um, about our neighbors. So I I enjoy the hell out of the Burbs. Um, I, it's not my favorite Joe Dante film, uh, but I like this whole idea of you know most of the humor and most of the horror actually coming from what people are projecting onto other people (laughs) and not like the reality because just like so-and-so could have been murdered then again he could have just gone to the hospital one night (laughs) you know he could be on vacation or he might be buried in the backyard (laughs) right yeah and i just i love how it escalates you know like throughout the movie it starts off everything's just kind of like yeah there's weird stuff next door their lawn is dead you know on the street where everyone has perfect yards um, but it just as they get more invested in like trying to figure out what's going on with these new neighbors, things just start to escalate. And so you have in this movie that I think is very, very funny. You also do get some some tenacious, some ten tenacious. What does that mean? Um, tense moments too that um that work really well. And I think it it's um uh I think Joe Dante was actually kind of the perfect director for this movie because I think this really does, um, even though I agree with you, I think that there are a couple of other his, of his films that are better. Um, but I think that this does tap into all the things that he does well um, in, in his films. So um, it, it also has some great dialogue. I really, <laughs> there are just some really <laughs> hilarious lines in this movie. One of my favorites is like, I've never seen that. I've never seen anyone drive their garbage down to the street and bang the hell out of it with a stick. I, I, I've never <laughs> seen that. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, so I just, yeah, I enjoy this movie. What uh, to you, what makes this work as an adaptation of Rear Window best? I know you talked about the the comparison of the, the Greenwich Village, the apartments to the suburbs, but why do you think this works so well as a, as a Hitchcock homage i i I think because yeah because you do have those moments of tension you do have that humor which which runs throughout so much of hitchcock i think this is the kind of film that hitchcock probably would have enjoyed like (laughs) he would have been entertained by it um 
but it, it's again, it's that very simple question of like, I see something weird happening with my neighbor. Is my neighbor dead? <laughs> right. <laughs> or a murderer? Or are they like, you know, just so so the, the question in your window is, has our neighbor killed his wife or has his wife gone away for, for the weekend? <laughs> right. That's that. And that's kind of the the tension of the film is the and and also the desire for it to be the murder i think that there's that too throughout the burbs they want these people to be like satanists they want them to have buried people in the backyard and in fact i think that the carrie fisher character actually accuses her husband of the, of like you want this to be something majorly fucked up mm-hmm. um that they're because it's exciting i i and i think that you get that in um in rear window as well and one of the the tensions in a lot of hitchcock films is is the way that it it reflects then onto the audience we want there to be a murderer yeah we want there to we want people to die right (laughs) and and then you get something like the burbs where it's it's kind of spreading it out even more it's being like you want them to be a cult Mm -hmm. because that's entertaining that it's more entertaining than if they're just normal people. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and so you begin, I, I I think that both films really reflect on the audience as well and reflect in the way that like the characters kind of get into this thing that's very exciting, but that it's also very dark. Like it's dark to want to want people to be killers. Right. Right. But it's far <laughs> more interesting than if they're just normal human beings. And um and yeah, so I, I think that 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 the films both kind of indulge in that. Yeah. And and also give us a safe space to indulge in it because ultimately they're films, right? Mm-hmm. They're no one's died, no one's been buried in the backyard. <laughs> uh all of that. I do like the the little tiny references, like I say, Bruce Stern, the little dog mm-hmm. um uh running around the neighborhood. Yeah, <laughs> the kind of, the mistakes that are made as well. Like there's that whole thing where he, where they think that Walter has been murdered and buried in the backyard, and um, and he writes like a letter saying, "I have your dog," <laughs> and then and what he's saying is, "I'm taking care of your dog while you're gone." Right. <laughs> but what it reads as, "You've kidnapped his dog." <laughs> yeah. Yep. Exactly. Like all of those those like misinterpretations, and right to the end of the burbs, it's not clear whether or not like it's just been this total projection of like we think our neighbors are weird therefore we've decided there's their murderous satan cult member right actually my i have there's two two last things i wanted to talk about um and then we'll we'll kind of wrap up but um one thing is the ending so what do you think of the fact that it turns out there is something really fucked up going on with the neighbors (laughs) I mean, I kind of wish that it hadn't because mm-hmm. I really like that whole speech that Tom Hanks gives about like, you know, we're the lunatics. Yeah. <laughs> right. And and I I like, yeah, I, I enjoy that. At the same time, I think it's also a good payoff. Yeah. Because there is, and part of it is because there is so much odd shit going on over there. <laughs> like it isn't, none of it is like when they get into the house, it's just like, this is not, normal something is something weird is going on um and and so so yeah i kind of kind of go back and forth on that um in some ways i I sort of wish it had just i sort of wish everything i I sort of wish that everything had just been explained 
Mm-hmm. Like, oh, the reason why we got all of these sounds is because of X. And, yeah. you know, well, we just moved in and we're going to have to move again. So we didn't bother unpacking. And we know, like, you know, just like, oh, our lawn is uncared for because we've got this, you know, horrible blight that is on the grass right now. We don't know how to fit, like, all of those things. <laughs> yeah. Part of me kind of wishes that there hadn't even been explanations that they had just moved away. Like, oh, we're transferring again. And then they just moved away. And then someone else moves in. And then it's just kind of everything mm-hmm. goes back to normal or does it? You know, I think that would have been funny. But also, yeah, I agree. Like, with everything that gets set up, you do have to have some sort of a payoff. So um, so the payoff that they come up with is really fucked up. And it really <laughs> is. It works. <laughs> so the other thing I wanted to talk about is... Um, something you had kind of mentioned in our in our conversation off uh off the record um but just the women so um you have carrie fisher and wendy shawl who play wives of of you have tom hanks's wife is carrie fisher and then bruce stern's wife is is wendy um her character is bonnie um and how they compare to the women in rear window which are grace kelly and thelma ritter so yeah um what are your thoughts on the way women are utilized i guess in the burbs versus rear window (laughs) well they're not i mean are they like (laughs) that's really what it comes down to in rear window the women the women get into it the women Mm -hmm. begin participating right and in fact grace kelly again becomes this very active active performer in everything um Thelma Ritter does as well to to a certain extent in fact she's the one who begins speculating just like where would he bury the body mm-hmm. like I'll bet that it's I'll bet the head is in the garden like you know because and and she like begins talking about you know how would you get rid of a body like that well, you'd have to chop it up because mm-hmm. you couldn't just carry a body out right um and and I wish that the women had gotten into it in the burbs i wish that like they began going like yeah you know what you're right something weird is going on over there and and i it would have given them more to do and also i don't understand the point of hiring someone like carrie fisher and not giving her much to do mm-hmm. like because she's she's basically the straight woman yeah um you know she doesn't really have a big role in it so it it winds up coming off like the the boys kind of playing in the backyard and eventually burning the house down right um which is totally showcased in a scene where mark and um art want ray to come out and she's like yeah no he needs to go inside <laughs> and like there's a line she says that i was like oh i remember my mom saying that to my friends i think i have given you my answer I was like, <laughs> yep yep i've heard my mom say that yeah it very much plays like it deliberately plays to that yes, it's, it's very much like mom mm-hmm. yeah 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 so i i do wish that again i understand like i because i understand what they were going for with it but i i do wish that the women had gotten more to do it's interesting that in both of these kind of parody satires remakes um the women actually have less to do mm-hmm. than in the hitchcock films right um i just want to just want to mention that <laughs> yes and i think that that's definitely worth mentioning and i think that especially in the burbs I think that having the women be less involved could have worked if the weirdness happening next door hadn't been so obviously weird. Yeah. <laughs> like it it does it it does make it strange that this, you know, this woman who's living next door to 
a house where everything on that property died within a couple of weeks and they hear weird noises and there's weird flashing lights and stuff. And her husband's like, yeah, the guy just beat the garbage can, you know, and all this is going on. And she's just like, it's nothing like it just doesn't quite (laughs) make sense. But if they had been a little bit less obvious about the weird stuff that was happening, it then it would have made more sense for her to just be like, dude, you're paranoid. Let's go on mm-hmm. vacation, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but I, I overall, I enjoy the movie. I think it's really, really funny, but oh, I do too. wish that the women had been a little bit more active. I agree with you. Yeah. So Yeah. No, no but I, I, it's a fun film. Yeah. Like it's an enjoyable watch, but uh yeah, I, I think I do think that it's interesting that of these films, the Hitchcock ones are the ones where the women are the most proactive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Um, the Burbs is available to stream on Peacock. So there you go. All right. Any other thoughts before we we wrap things up today? No. Watch Hitchcock films and watch remakes of Hitchcock films. They're very interesting. There are other remakes as well that we haven't talked about. There are. Um, what are some of them are okay. That you enjoy. <laughs> Uh, I actually quite like, I think it's called A Perfect Murder, um, mm-hmm. which is a remake of Dial in for Murder. It's not as good as the original, but I think that it's an interesting kind of riff on on the original idea. Um, Mel Brooks's High Anxiety, which I think we've mentioned before, is it's, it's a deliberate direct spoof of Hitchcock films. And it's got everything in it. Like, it's got a spoof of absolutely everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's a lot of fun. And then also... Yeah, like the fact that Hitchcock remade his own film and and there's so much Hitchcockian reference in so many films. I mean, Hitchcockian is, you know, a term that people misuse a great deal, mm-hmm. um, but actually does come up in a lot of films. So it's it's worth like he, he was so influential. And at the same time, it's so obvious when people are making reference to Hitchcock. Mm hmm yeah it's so true um yeah you know i also want to just say that i think i think the 2000 movie disturbia is also not a terrible remake of mm-hmm. window either i think that's actually pretty good um and shout out to mission impossible 2 which we all know <laughs> is based on notorious <laughs> ripped off notorious yes uh, okay. but the best the best rear window remake is actually the simpsons episode bard of darkness um <laughs> That like I I actually think that that one just sort of wins, <laughs> and the best um, birds remake <laughs> is I forget which Simpsons episode it's the um a, a streetcar named Marge I think where <laughs> there's an entire there's an entire birds reference throughout. <laughs> nice. Um. All right. Well, I think that's gonna wrap things up then. Happy birthday, Alfred Hitchcock. Hundred and twenty four years young. uh anyway we all we thank you all so much for for listening we hope that you've enjoyed this episode we especially would like to thank our patrons who help make this possible and keep the lights on and keep the show going they are ollie brian connor estefania heather james uh, judy karen cariata lauren matt michelle monty nanina robert robert steve sharon and tau if you would also like to become a patron too and help support the show you can go to patreon.com slash citizen name uh, we also have a zazzle store zazzle.com slash citizen name pod you can pick up a t-shirt or something and we have our ko-fi if you don't want to commit and you don't need swag ko-fi.com slash citizen name we are on 
uh, online. We have our website, citizendamepod.com. We've got some stuff coming your way there. And uh, if you would like to reach out to us, you can email us anytime, citizendamepod at gmail.com. And we are also on all the social medias. We uh, haven't really spent much time on Twitter these days, but we do still have an account there for now. Um, Twitter, Instagram, and also we are on Blue Sky. Citizen Dame Pod is where you can find us. Just search Citizen Dame Pod and, and we'll pop up. You also can follow us on Letterbox, and we are growing that community all the time. So I love Letterbox. I'm a big fan. So that we are um we are on Letterboxd at Citizen Dame. So Lauren, where can people find you? I am on Twitter, Instagram, Blue Sky, Letterboxd at LH Business. And I am also on all those same places at Karen M. Peterson. So thank you all so much for listening and we will catch you next time. Bye. Look at me. I'm a shell of a man because of you, Art. You leave. Now, now, now. Soldiers. You leave them alone. Get out that case already. They didn't do anything to us. They didn't do anything to us. All right, so they're different, so they keep to themselves. Can you blame them? They live next door to people who break into their house and burn it down while they're gone for the day. Remember what you were saying about people in the burbs, Art? People like Skip? People who mow their lawn for the 800th time and then snap? Well, that's us! It's not them! That's us! We're the ones who are vaulting over the fences and peeking into people's windows. We're the ones who are throwing garbage in the street and lighting fires. We're the ones who are acting suspicious and paranoid. We're the lunatics. Us. It's not them. It's us. I don't know what to say. What, do you want me to move?